together, can we? And I guess you get the message of the veil. And that's what we're going to talk about today. I want to first of all uh, welcome two of our dear friends, Pastor Sonny and Susan Knatzer. Y'all turn around and raise your hands or something where they can see you. And uh, Pastor uh, Sonny is now uh, semi-retired from pastoring, but now he's overseeing an organization. Let me see if I get it right. Church on the Rock Fellowship Network of Ministers. And uh, so he's busy. He travels all the time, and so he landed here today. It's always good to have visiting pastors. And, of course, my sweetheart is here. There's good to have Kathy always. And, um, well, I'll tell you, was Greg, did that not rock last Sunday night or what? Greg Laurie? It turned out being the largest Christian event in the history of America. It's amazing. All those people saved was an amazing thing. Let's pray together. There's, there is a message burning on my heart. I mean, the word burns. And I want to talk to you today about the veil. Now, we're doing a little series leading up to Easter where last week it was the, um, the, the sacrifice of Jesus, the, the ransom that was paid, and that's what that cross is about. We had many of you in our fellowship hall put your hand first into some red liquid and then put it on the cross signifying that, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Yes, you were there. And our sins, your sins, mine, all of our sins, played a part in putting him on that tree. What a beautiful cross it is. And today in the fellowship hall, you're going to go back there as soon as this service is over and do another interactive experience where there is a veil and there is a video. And we want you to experience the message. So we're going to read one verse, and then I'm going to share this with you. If you have your Bibles, I'm reading out of the New King James, Matthew 27, verse 50. If you don't have your Bible with you, look up on the screen, and it's right there. It's two verses, actually. And this is a a historical account of one of the many miracles that happened when Jesus died on the cross. And it was a powerful miracle, this veil. Let's, Let's read it. Are you ready? Matthew 27, 50. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And at that moment, what did it say? The veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom by invisible hands. I added that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for the power of your word. Lord, I need your anointing today to preach this word. I cannot deliver this, Lord, without your touch and without your favor. I pray, Lord, that your spirit will land on this word, own this word, and wing it into the hearts of everyone listening. Here in the sanctuary by streaming video on radio, Lord, let your word live as it does live. Will you breathe a prayer church and say, Lord, speak to me today. In Jesus' name, I receive it. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him the veil was torn for you. Amen. Now, during the lifetime of Jesus, the holy temple in Jerusalem was the center of religious life. It's sort of like if you're a member of this church, if you go to this church, this building is is the center. It's where we all meet. It's the center of our religious, spiritual, Christian life. 
That's what the temple was in the days of Jesus. The temple, even in the New Testament, at the beginning of the New Testament, played a significant role in many, many things that testified to who Jesus was. It was in the temple where Simeon and Anna first spied the baby Jesus, held him up, and prophesied over him. It was in the temple. It was in the temple where the 12-year-old Jesus was finally found by his parents, shocked to see him sitting amongst the doctors of the law, questioning them and answering their questions and blowing them away with his precocious wisdom. That was in the temple. It was in the temple where Jesus walked in and overthrew the money changers' tables after he made a whip himself and went in there and used it on them. He wasn't being very politically correct that day. He walked in and whipped them out. And he said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. That was the temple. It it was in the temple where Jesus was charged with crimes he had not committed. It's where he first began going through what we might call kangaroo court, where they were accusing him of things that he hadn't done. That was in the temple. The temple was the place where animal sacrifices were carried out and the, the worship, the Judaistic worship, according to the law of Moses, was faithfully followed every single day. That was the temple. And, of course, it was the temple that the disciples pointed to and say, Lord, isn't that an amazing building? And Jesus said, I'm telling you, the day is going to come when not one stone is going to be left on top of another because you have not recognized the day of your visitation. So in 70 A.D., Roman, the Roman legions under Titus went in and attacked Jerusalem and leveled the temple that not one stone was left on another, just like Jesus said, because he was the greatest prophet of all. The temple. Now, the temple, if you and I had lived back then and had walked up to it, we would have noticed immediately that it was divided into three parts. There was the outer court, and the only way I know to, to explain the outer court It was very informal. The outer court was like our foyer where everybody mingles and talks and, you know, how's the weather and how's business and so on and so forth. That was the outer court. Anybody was welcome into the outer court. But then you went a little step further in and then there was the holy place. And the holy place is where the priests only had daily access to the holy place and they would go in and burn incense and trim the lamps daily under the ordination of Moses. But then if you went further, but you couldn't go further, but if you had been able to go further, you would have gone into one last place called the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies was the sacred place where only one man, one time a year, I'm going to say it again, one man, one time a year, that's it. It was occupied one time a year, one man. The high priest was permitted to go in and offer the sacrifice for the great day of atonement. The Holy of Holies was the earthly dwelling place of God's presence. Now that earthly dwelling place is you. Think about that. The earthly dwelling place where the Shekinah glory rested and and, and the place where the presence of God was uniquely manifested was the Holy of Holies. But I'm going to say it again. Now it's moved from the temple to you, for you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Well, what a great and awesome and unbelievable honor that is. 
Now, if you had been able to go inside the Holy of Holies, you would have noticed one thing in there, and that's the Ark of the Covenant. There sat the Ark of the Covenant. And if you had been able to lift the lid and look in, you would have seen the tablets of stone chiseled out by the very finger of God, the Ten Commandments resting in that ark. If you had been able to jump back about 500 years sooner, there would have also been in there Aaron's rod that budded and also a little jar that had an example of the manna that had fallen every day for 40 years to feed the children of Israel in the wilderness. You would have found that, but 500 years had gone by, so the rod had gone to ashes and the manna as well. But, but the one thing that did remain was those stone tablets with the commandments of God. And then you would have noticed the lid. The lid was made of pure gold, and it looked like wings. And that was called the mercy seat. And this high priest would walk in on the Day of Atonement, and, and he would go in there with the blood of a, a, a bull or the blood of a goat, and he would sprinkle blood on top of that mercy seat because it was by the mercy of God we were forgiven. He would sprinkle it on top of that mercy seat and make atonement for the people. Very, very, very powerful truth there. I, there's so much you could talk about, but listen to what Hebrews 9, 7 says. Only the high priest ever entered the most holy place, and only once a year, and he always offered blood for his own sins and for the sins the people had committed. Notice, the priest was as sinful as the people. But here's the deal. The blood of an animal did not suffice. The blood of an animal did not do it. You know how we know that? Because they had to do it year after year after year after year. And at priest after priest after priest, decades became centuries, centuries more and centuries more. You had to continuously every year shed blood for the sins of the people. And that's why Hebrews tell us, tells us when Jesus died, it was once for all. Because he was the priest that had no sin. The Bible says it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. And that's why they had to do it repeatedly. So, so the, the Holy of Holies experienced activity only one time a year. The rest of the time it was dark and silent and solemn. If the high priest entered any other day than the Day of Atonement, he was struck down dead. If the high priest came in without the blood of a bull or a goat, he was struck down dead. If any other person decided to go in there and look around, they were struck down dead. And you know what message that gives us and gave them particularly in that day? The whole system screamed, stay away. God is untouchable, unapproachable. He's frightening. He's scary. I can't understand him. I better not go near him. I would love to experience his presence, but I can't go beyond the veil. It said you aren't qualified to enter on your own good works, your own good looks, your own good effort, your own good will. Nobody can enter in. You must know that it's there, but you can't enter. You know that it's there, but you can't go through it. There's you on this side and God on this side. In order to make this separation crystal clear, God had ordered 
that a thick curtain be hung between the holy place and the most holy place, the holy of holies, and we call that the veil. That's what in the video our, our guy walked up to and, and hit it and got kind of caught up in it and then had to go away. But then when he realized that there was a bloody cross on his palm, then he approached it and a hand that had been crucified reached through it and pulled him through. And the idea being that only by Jesus do you get past that veil of separation. So, so, so God was making it crystal clear. There's a separation between you and me. And when we think of a curtain or a veil, I don't know about you, but I, when I first read about this many, many years ago, I thought it was like living room drapes, you know, just something hanging down. Until I read the Bible and did a little research, Exodus 26, 31 describes this veil that, that separated the people from God, describes it as a curtain of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and finely twisted linen with cherubim worked into it by a skilled craftsman. Now, what are those cherubim doing there? You remember back when Adam and Eve fell in the garden, and they were driven out of the garden, and it says that God posted cherubim around the tree of life so that Adam and Eve could not access it. So the cherubim were used all the way back in the garden to bring separation, to signify and reinforce the separation between God and man that resulted because of sin. So that's why they're in this veil. That's why they're there. Jewish writers say that this veil was 60 feet long, 20 feet wide, woven the thickness of a man's hand. It was about six inches thick of woven yarn. As thick as three phone books. No man can rip that. It required 300 men to lift it up and put it in place. So it was an impenetrable, awesome uh, uh, intimidating veil. Such a curtain, and this is the whole idea, could never be torn in two by the hands of man. Only God could tear apart a curtain like that. And that's why the Bible tells us the curtain was torn from top to bottom, testifying that God had done what only God can do. God tore it. And that's the good news today. I've got good news for you today. God tore it. And then there's a reason that He did. So, so follow me now. What well, well, the veil between the holy place and the holy of holies, that huge veil that took 300 men to put up, what it signified was we were separated from God's presence by our sin. And that's the message of the veil. That's the first message. We were separated from God by our sin. Isaiah the prophet wrote, your iniquities have separated you from your God and your sins have hidden his face from you. And the veil was a daily reminder of that to the Jewish people. Every time they saw that veil, they, they, they said separation. Why? Because we sinned. We can't reach him. We can't reach him by our own good works, by our own good name, by any money, any price. We cannot reach him. That veil of separation tells me there is a great chasm between me and and God. And how frustrating that is. I want in, but I can't get in. I want to experience Him, but I can't experience Him because of the veil. 
when you think about it, the veil was like a giant roadblock, making sure that nobody could come into God's presence uninvited. Now, both Matthew, Mark, and Luke record that when Jesus was dying, he cried out with a loud voice. You know, I was thinking about this. I can't remember a, a time in the gospel accounts when Jesus really screamed or yelled, but he did on the cross. He did on the cross. So piercing was the cry that a Roman centurion standing by was moved to say, truly, this was the Son of God. There was something about that scream, something about that yell. And this centurion believed on the spot. At the very moment this loud cry of the dying Christ rang over the heads of the awestruck multitude, that imposing wall of separation was laid hold of by a pair of giant hands and torn in half from top to bottom. Well, I think it made a loud noise. We're talking about something at least six inches thick, 20 feet high, and all of a sudden it was ripped, and the word torn in the Greek language is a powerful word. It means ripped with force. This was not a casual, kind of slow-going tear. This was God. It was as if God was saying, I've hated this separation as much as you have. Rip! <laughs> now, the veil being dramatically ripped in two by God himself, was the physical symbol of three powerful spiritual truths. And I pray you get these truths today because, listen, something like that that is that dramatic does not happen unless there is a powerful spiritual meaning behind it for us in the New Testament living under the blood of Jesus today. So let me tell you what those three truths are. First, a door was opened. A door was opened. Listen to Hebrews 10, 19. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter. Can you say those four words with me? Can boldly enter. Let's try it again. One, two, three. We can boldly enter. We can boldly enter. Heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. And then it goes on to say by the death, by his death, Jesus opened a new and living way through the curtain into the most holy place. Christ's body was torn on the cross, just like the veil was torn in the temple, providing an open door to heaven, an open door to heaven, an open door to heaven through His blood. I love four of the words. I love those four words. We can boldly enter. Now, I want you to picture with me in your mind's eye a door. And this, this, this was real up until Jesus came. Here's a door. Here it is. It's a beautiful door. It, it, it's, a, it's an impressive door. And we know that on the other side of that door is the presence of God, relationship with God, the, the blessings of God, the favor of God, experiencing God. We know that on the other side of that door awaits an incredible life and experience. But, but written on the door is a message. Because of your sin, you cannot enter. We grab that knob and we're frustrated. Let me in, let me in. But we see that it's bolted, it's chained, it's latched. We can't get through. You can't go over it, you can't go around it, you can't go under it, you sure can't go through it. We long to be reunited with our 
maker, but we can't. There, there's this door, there's this issue, there's this problem, there's this veil. You can bang on it, it's not going to open. Because of your sin, you cannot enter. Because of your sin, you cannot enter. Padlock, chain, bolted by our sin. But when Jesus died on the cross, listen, his shed blood provided the only key available in the entire universe that could open that door. And so now we come up to that door, and there's a different message written on it. And that different message says, Whosoever will, let him come by the blood of the Lamb. Whosoever will. So now I walk up to that door and I find that if I say I believe in Jesus, I trust Christ, I receive Him into my heart, I trust in the shed blood of the Lamb, that the doorknob now turns and we hear on the other side the chains and latches fall off and we walk through that door. We have, he opened a door when the veil was ripped in half. A door was opened. Say with me, we're no longer blocked by the curtain. We've been escorted through the curtain into the very holy of holies where God's glory is manifested, which we experienced today when we worshiped. Did you notice when we worshiped, there was a presence that was beyond you and beyond me. That's the holy of holies, the Shekinah glory. When the Holy Spirit fell upon the church on the day of Pentecost, that was their birthday. And when that Holy Spirit fell, th that was the power everybody was wanting to get to on the other side of the veil but couldn't. But now... It's for anybody, whosoever will. If you're a whosoever, say amen. amen. So first, a door was opened. But second, a road was paved. It says this, Hebrews 10, 20, By his death, Jesus opened a new and living way through the curtain into the most holy place, meaning into the richness of his presence. This is the road that Isaiah talked about when he wrote. He said, I'm about to do something new. See, I have already begun. This is God talking through Isaiah in the first person. I'm about to do something new. See, I've already begun. Do you not see it? I will make a road in the wilderness. See, the wilderness he's talking about is our total inability to get to God on our own. We can't get there by good works. We can't get there by good intention. We can't get there by any other way. He's got to pave the road. We can't do it. He's got to be our way maker. We were lost in the wilderness of sin. But here's what the word way is telling us, a new and living way. But now God has paved a road right through that wilderness, right into his presence. I don't know if you've ever been lost in the woods. I've been lost in the woods a few times. I have a terrible sense of direction. I mean, you can just put me somewhere and turn me a few times and I'm lost. But now, I got lost in the woods. I can't tell you when you're, you know, reaching through stickers and bramble and forest and trees and bushes trying to find your way, how thrilling it is when you see a path or a road because you know that a road is going to take you out of being lost. Now, here's the deal. A door provides access in, but a road provides the means of reaching a destination. 
And the two are completely distinct and different. A new and living way means a, that once you walk through that door, there's a road looking right at you. Once you walk through that door, there's a road. It's paved. It's beautiful. It is so welcome to see it. There's your road, the highway of holiness, the king's highway. Jesus said there's two roads in life. He said there's a broad road that leads to destruction, and many there be that go in thereat. But he said there is a narrow road, and that narrow road that it leads to life. It is life-giving. It is life-bringing. It is life-sustaining. It's a road of life and not of death. And Jesus said, few there be that find it. The narrow road that Jesus talked about is the road his blood paved for us. Because nobody can get on that road unless he puts you on that road. Nobody can get on that road unless he makes the road, paves the road, and then puts you on the road. We stand here by grace, not our own brilliant intellect. We do not wake up one day and say, I believe today I'm going to deduce logically that God is real and that Christ was really his son and I'm going to be saved. No, 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 no. You were lost and going straight to a devil's hell and God's grace touched your heart. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound saved a foolish wretch like me. And now watch this. I thought last night, Jesus claimed that he himself is both the door and the way. He said, I am the door for the sheep. Those who come in by way of the door will be saved. I'm going to read that again because it's good news. Those that come in by way of the door, only by way of the door, not by any other way, will be saved. And we'll go in and out and find green pastures. Can I give you some news today? There's not a bunch of doors to choose from. Jesus said, I am the one and only exclusive door. There's not another one. You can't go through the door of Buddha. You can't go through the door of Krishna. You can't go through the door of Muhammad. You can't go through the door of good works. You can't go through the door of good intentions. You cannot go through the door by any pedigree of your own. You cannot go through the door by trying to go around it or over it. You, you can't go through the door any way but by accessing the door who is Jesus. He said, I am the door. You say, well, Jeff, that's so narrow. You're right. You say, well, that's so exclusive. You're right. Well, that, that doesn't really give me much room to move. No, it doesn't. But once you go through that door and get on that narrow road that leads to life, you will find that even though that road is constricted, it sets you free. You will know the truth, and it will make you free. That road is the road that frees you. It is the road of discipline, yes, but it's the road of liberty as well. He also said, I'm the way, the road, the pathway that leads to heaven. He's both the door, and Jesus is the way. Now through his blood, we can go directly to God anytime. The intimidating veil has been torn in half. The door of access has been opened. The road leading to heaven has been paved. Say with me, a door was open. A road was paved. But i got to share one last thing. Our hope was confirmed. Now listen to what I mean by that. Not only is the door open and a road paved, but the tearing of the veil means that our hope 
of eternal life has been confirmed by God himself. You say, Jeff, why do you say that? Because he's the one that tore that veil that he originally put up. See, the temple was a slingshot away from Jesus dying on the cross. Just over yonder, Jesus was crying out and giving up his last breath. And as soon as that last breath was exhaled, God's invisible hand reached down and ripped that veil in half. My son has opened a door, and my son has paved a road. And now I'm going to confirm that by myself reaching down and ripping the veil of separation in half. Hebrews says, this hope of being saved is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. Jesus has already gone in there for us. He has become our eternal high priest. We're never going to need another one. We've got one high priest. We're never going to need another one. He's been at God's right-hand side for 2,100 years, and he ever lives to make intercession for us, and we're never going to need another. There's never going to be a replacement. These verses tell us in plain language that we have an anchor for our soul that cannot be moved because it's founded on a rock, Jesus Christ himself. Now, um, when I lived in East Texas, I pastored there for seven years. I was a city boy in a country town. I was raised in the concrete jungle. Everybody else there had been raised in the real woods. And I realized after I'd been there for a while that after every church service, they'd go off and they would talk to each other about the biggest fish they caught that week or the, new, the, the, the deer they shot that week. And all I could talk about was the book I'd read that week. So I said, I'm going to have to become one of them to reach them. So I went and bought a bass boat. All my country guys there, including my associate pastor at the time, thought that was real funny. I got my bass boat, and they just thought, oh, here goes the city boy out into the lake. And they said, we'll be praying for you, Pastor. I wheeled it out there. I set it out on the ocean. And I said, oh, God, anoint me today. Anoint me today. I had all my gear. I had a depth finder. A depth finder is the way you kind of see the bottom of the lake, what's down there. I had my live well where you put the fish you caught. And I shoved off alone. And I'm telling you the truth. I'm standing at the pulpit. This is the truth. I got out there, I threw the bait out there, it sunk to the bottom, and all of a sudden I thought I was hung on something, and it was caught, but it went, and my pole just went, and the line began to scream, and then I began to scream. I said, oh my gosh, and I fought and pulled, and, and almost, I'm, I'm like Barney Fife, and I brought in are you ready? A beautiful, sparkling, glittering, gleaming, glistening, eight-pound black bass. I threw that thing in the live well. I said, glory to God. And I put my line out there again. Now, again, I'm at a pulpit, so here's the truth. That same bait on the same line in the same spot hit the bottom. I began to walk it. Bang! again. Now I'm thinking I'm under the anointing of God. This is a miracle. And I'm pulling it in. 
a great big five-pound black bass. Threw that in the live well. Right about then, my associate came pulling up in his big glistening red sparkly boat. He said, well, how are you doing, Pastor? Oh, I couldn't wait. I said, well, listen, uh, you tell me how I'm doing. And I reached my hand to the live well. You hear this, boom, 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 boom. My, that bass was fighting. I pulled out this big eight-pound black bass. My associate went totally dead silent. They never made fun of me again. <laughs> you think that I wasn't heading straight for that circle of guys after church that Sunday? I jumped right in the big middle of them and said, hey, let me tell you what happened to me this week. And then I was thinking, I really have a fishing anointing. And I went back out there and realized the anointing had lifted. Right? But, but here's what I did learn. I had an anchor, and I learned that if you drop that anchor where it's just going to hit dirt and sand, any little wind is going to blow you away and carry you out into the deep of the lake and not where you want to be. It's going to carry you where you don't want to go. If, you, if there's any wind blowing, the anchor being anchored in sand or mud is not going to hold you. You're going to be blown where you don't want to go. But I learned if I could find with that depth finder a rock or a, 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 a log somewhere down there that I could attach it to, then let the wind blow, let the rains fall, let the waves come and beat on the, the, the boat. I might be rocked, I might go around in little circles, I might experience a little bit of tribulation, but it never moved me from where I wanted to stay because my anchor was attached to a rock. Now, here's the deal. This verse is telling us that our, our faith and our hope are anchors. And we want to anchor not into sand, but we want to anchor to a rock. And the Bible tells us that Jesus is the rock we anchor to. And when the winds blow and the floods come and, and, and all the troubles of life try to batter us and carry us where we don't want to go, we're able to stay stable and fixed, and we can say, I shall not be moved because I'm anchored to a rock. His name is Jesus. Say with me, because he cannot be moved. We cannot be moved. In 1834, Edward Mote wrote the words of a poem that became a famous gospel song called The Solid Rock. Just listen to these words. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest, most persuasive frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. The second verse pulls from Hebrews 6. Here's what it says. When darkness seems to hide His face, I rest on His unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, listen to these words, my anchor holds within the veil. Because our hope and faith went through that veil, through that curtain, anchored onto the presence and the rock Jesus Christ that was in that holy place. And then the chorus declares what all Christians know is true. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground, is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. So the door to heaven is open to anyone, anytime, anywhere. 
The road into his presence has been paved for us. And our hope of eternal life has been confirmed by God himself. Can we stand together today? Perhaps today you feel such a great weight of sin that you wonder if Jesus can even receive you. You're convinced that you've done worse than everyone else has done. The devil has convinced you of that. And you just went too far. He can't forgive you. Can I tell you today that he can forgive you? There is no sin you've committed that he can't forgive. See, there is a message for you. It's the message of the veil. The message of the veil. And here's the message of the veil. Fear not. Don't let your sins keep you away. God has opened the door to heaven. God has paved a road into his presence. It's Jesus himself. The door says, whosoever will, put your hand on the doorknob today. And try turning it when you've looked to Jesus for your salvation. And see if that door doesn't swing open and the blessings of God cascade down upon your life. And he'll put you on a new road today, that paved road. Can we bow for prayer? <clears throat> Father, I thank you today. We thank you for the torn veil. We thank you, Lord, that you opened the way and your presence moved from that inner sanctum into us who believe. And we thank you, Lord, that as soon as a person says, Jesus, forgive me, that presence goes to live in them. And so, Lord, right now, I pray that you will touch us. Now, if you're here today and you can say, you know, Jeff, I don't know if I've ever opened the door to him. I've always felt that I was just too sinful, that I was too much trouble, that if I did it, I'd just go sin again and mess up, so why even try? I want to encourage you today to grab the doorknob. Grab the doorknob. And say, Jesus, forgive me. See if that door doesn't open for you. I'm going to lead you in a simple prayer. Pray this with me if you need to. Say, Lord Jesus, I believe you died for me and rose from the dead so I could be saved. Jesus, I ask you to forgive me based on your shed blood I come boldly to you and ask for your forgiveness. Come into my heart, Lord, and be my Savior today. If you pray that with me, I want you to, to picture something with me right now. Picture your hand reaching out and you're grabbing that doorknob. Whosoever will, you're a whosoever, turn that doorknob, throw it open, because that's what he's done. You're never going to be the same. I want you to know that the Holy Spirit drew you because no man comes to Jesus unless the Spirit draws him. How many of you are glad you came to church today? Amen? Isn't that good?